through your research, you discover um, a virus that no one else knows about. And this particular um, vi virus is 100% uh, fatal. Uh, through your research, you, you, you come to this conclusion. And, and not only that, 100% of the human race has it. And you know that as a result of that, every man, woman, and child will one day pass away. Well, as you continue on in your research, you begin to realize there is no way that you can announce this sickness without first developing a cure. And so you continue to, to study, you continue to dive into this thing, and eventually you find a cure, okay? Um, it's... it's it's, it's an amazing discovery. No one else knows but you. And so what you do is, of course, first is you try it on yourself. And you know what? It works. And then you try it on those who are close to you. And it works. Now you're ready to make this thing global. You're ready to tell the whole world that, you, that there is this, this sickness, this virus that everyone has. Though you may not know that you, that you have it, that there is a cure. So you arrange a press conference, you invite your family and some associates and, and anyone else who will show up. And, and to your amazement, very few people actually show up. And even more so, not even many of your colleagues show up. Uh, and, and, and there's really not much of an explanation. And um, uh, you're, you're, you're trying with everything that you can to explain the situation to the world. And, and some of your colleagues are in the background and they're just sort of saying, well, you know, um, uh, we don't know what's happened to him. And, and as, you, as you explain this, you plead with people. And you say, listen, this is 100% fatal. Everyone has it. And the problem is, is that you don't realize you have it until it's too late. Some people will admit to the symptoms, and they may even grudgingly admit that they have the virus, but, but they're, they're, they disagree with you that this thing is terminal for everyone and, and needs immediate care. In fact, why would you bother with some sort of um, uh, uh, antidote to some sickness that you don't even know is fatal and you don't even know that you have it? Well, here's your next step. How can you convince the sick of their condition when they don't believe they are sick? You have the antidote, but you can't take it and pour it down everyone's throat throughout the entire world. They have to want to take the medicine. You reason. You're persistent. You communicate the nature of the, of the virus, uh, the effectiveness of the cure. Some are convinced, and they take the remedy, and they join the cause. But you know what? It's just not many people who actually believe it. So here's the reality of the situation. The reality of the situation is in Genesis chapter 3. And much like the illustration that I gave you, that is the reality of humankind. It describes the condition of the man, of, of mankind since Genesis chapter 3. When we had this perfect relationship with God in this perfect environment and man chose to rebel and therefore a virus that is 100% fatal affected mankind, that's called death and that's called sin. Everyone has it, 100% of all people will die, everyone uh, will eventually 
uh, sin in some way or some capacity. Everyone has this issue. Now, what a lot of people don't believe is that sin is unnoticed. There are some people who might admit, well, I'm kind of a sinner. Others may not. And there are many people who really don't believe it's terminal. Oh, sure, we're all going to die, but that's just the way it is. It has nothing to do with this sickness that you call sin. And maybe even far less people actually believe that they need a cure for sin. Well, there are a lot of people that maybe you've heard who have said this. You know, in the end of all things, I'm just hoping that my good outweighs my bad. And you know, I'm a pretty good person And I believe that God is a God of love and God will allow me in heaven no matter what. Now, I have a video clip. I don't know if that first video clip uh, from that uh, uh, 180 YouTube is is ready. And um, uh, this is a video clip put out by Ray Comfort, who is an evangelist extraordinaire. And uh, he has a movie called The 180 Movie. The movie is about abortion and it links together the thought process behind Um, Nazi Germany and how that relates to the modern-day Holocaust that we call abortion. Now, if you want to look at this video, it's available for free on YouTube, or you can go to his website, raycomfort.com. I just want to let you know it's pretty graphic, and the the video explains that as well. But there's a short little video clip that I want to show you uh, that explains this dilemma that we have in this virus called sin. Go ahead and show this. Sure, we're going to go to heaven. Yes, sir. No. I think that that was something, like heaven and hell, it was kind of made up. Are you afraid of dying? No, I'm not afraid of death. Where are you going when you die? At the moment, hell. Stephen, what do you think happens when someone dies? Do you think there's an afterlife? Uh, I don't know, probably not. Probably not? So this is all there is? Uh, I think so, yeah. Do you believe God exists? I don't think so, no. If there is a heaven, do you think you get there? Are you a good person? Oh, yeah, for sure. God wouldn't be mad at me. I'm a good person morally. Yeah, I'm a good person. I'd hope so. Yes, sir. I believe in God. I believe in good. I don't do nobody no harm. If there's a heaven, do you think you're good enough to go there? Are you a good person? Uh, yeah, I think I'm a good person. Why would you go to hell? Because of my lifestyle I'm living. There is no hell. I don't believe that there is a judgment. You don't? No, I don't believe that. But what's going to happen to Hitler on Judgment Day? He's, he's in hell. How many lies have you told in your life? Oh, I don't know. Thousands, I guess. Lies? Lies? Too many to count. Oh, countless. What do you call somebody who tells countless lies? A liar? Have you ever stolen something? In my lifetime? Mm-hmm. Sure, of course, yeah. Uh, yes. Sure. What do you call somebody who steals things? A thief. So what are you? A liar and a thief. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Absolutely. Sure have. Absolutely. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Yes. I heard you use his name just before, probably about 30 seconds ago, when you talked about lying. Do you realize that's called blasphemy? When you use God's name as a cuss word, it's very serious? Sure, I guess it is, yeah. Now, Jesus said if you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Have you ever done that, looked at a woman with lust? Shoot me now. (laughs) Yes, sir. (laughs) Yeah. I like fornicating, it's fun. Yeah, well, you can like raping and bank robbery. It can be fun, but it's not right. Have you ever looked at a guy with lust? No, I'm gay. I commit adultery about every two minutes, maybe. Have you ever looked with lust? Yes. Yes. So, Alicia, by your own admission, you're a lying, blasphemous adulterer at heart. And you've got to face God on Judgment Day. And we've looked at four of the Ten Commandments. Oh, my goodness. You had sex out of marriage. Yep. 
So listen to this, listen to this day, but this is why you don't want to believe in God. You're a self-admitted lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterer, fornicator, uh -huh. and you have to face God on judgment day, and the thought of being morally responsible to him is abhorrent to you, so you deny his existence. Uh -huh. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. It makes total sense. So John, you're in big trouble on judgment day. By your own admission, you're a lying thief, a blasphemer, adulterer at heart, a fornicator. Wow. So will you go to heaven or hell? From the way it sounds, hell. Does that concern you? Absolutely. No, 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 no. You got it all wrong. Uh, guilty. Would you go to heaven or hell? Hell. Does that concern you? Yeah. So does it concern you that if you died today and God gave you justice, you'd end up in hell? Not really, no. Well, don't try to. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> I want to talk to you this morning about, about the law of God, the law of God. Um, and um, I want to show you how it, this is one way to sort of level the playing field when it comes to telling people about your faith. And now Ray Comfort is sort of a, 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 not sort of, he's a gifted evangelist. It's not too many times you could call someone a lying, thieving adulterer and have them smile at you when you say it. Uh, and, and agree. Help, that's me. Like, okay, well, I'm glad we're on the same page. You know, so he, he has a unique gift of calling pay, people thieves and liars and adulterers and them agreeing with him, okay? But the point is, is that uh, he believes, as well as many others, that preaching the law is hell's best kept secret. And that's the title of a book that he wrote. Um, and I, uh, I want to focus a little bit on the law of God. John Wesley said this, Before I can preach love, mercy, and grace, I must preach sin, law, and judgment. And he went as far to advise, preach 90% law and 10% grace. Wow. Okay. Let me read this from Charles Spurgeon. And if you've read any of his writings, you know that uh, this man basically pulled no punches. He told it straight. God used it as multitudes and multitudes came to Christ. He said, but more, there is war between thee and God's law. The Ten Commandments are against thee. The first comes forward and says, let him be cursed, for he denies me. He has another God besides me. His God is his belly. He yieldeth homage to its lust. All Ten Commandments are like ten great cannons, are pointed at thee today, for you have broken all God's statutes and lived in daily neglect of all his commands. Soul. Thou wilt find it a hard thing to go to war with the law. What will ye do when the law comes in terror, when the trumpet of the archangel shall tear you from your grave, when the eyes of God shall burn their way into your guilty soul, when the great book shall be opened and all your sin and shame shall be punished? Woo! They must be slain by the law before... They can be made alive by the gospel. Charles Finney said this, It is of great importance that the sinner should be made to feel his guilt and not left to the impression that he is unfortunate. Do not be afraid, but show him the breadth of the divine law and the exceeding strictness of its precepts. Make him see it condemns his thoughts and life. Okay? Now, the purpose of the law, the purpose of God's law. When I say the law, I'm speaking of the Ten Commandments, the Big Ten. All right? It shows us that we're guilty before a holy God. The law shows us that we're guilty before a holy God. Scriptural basis, Romans 3.19, if you want to take notes and write this down, says this. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. 
the law shows us our guilt. When you're driving down the road and there's, you know, those little stop, the, the little um, uh, uh, speed signs that actually show you your speed. I mean, like, like, why would they invest in putting signs up that show you that you're speeding? Or, or maybe you're not. You know, and, and when you see that, um, I mean, like, you can see the sign that says speed limit 35. And, and you might go, you might go, oh, wow, I, I, I'm speeding. But when you see it says speed limit 35, and underneath that it says you're going 45, doesn't that make you go, oh, my goodness? You know, I, I don't know. It just, when I actually see the sign and I know that I'm violating it, it just, uh, it, I, is it just me or are you guys not tracking with me? Okay, all right, you, you get that, all right? Acts chapter 24, verse 24 and 25 says this. It says, a few days later, Felix came back with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, sending for Paul. They listened as he told them about faith in Christ Jesus. As he reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control and the coming day of judgment, Felix became frightened Go away for now, he replied. When it is more convenient, I'll call for you again. He also hoped that Paul would bribe him, so he sent for him quite often and talked to him. See, Paul speaks to him about faith in Christ, but then he speaks to him about righteousness. Righteousness is being made right with God. And you can't talk about righteousness with talk about us being unrighteous. And the reason we're unrighteous is because we violated God's commandment and God's laws. So I'm pretty sure that Paul the Apostle, in his message to these people, spoke about the law of God and how they transgressed it. Ah. Secondly, it brings us the knowledge of sin. Romans 3.20 says, For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Okay? Like a ruler uh, which tells us what straight is, the law tells us what sin really is. Romans 7.7, In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known what covenant that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet, Paul the Apostle says. Fourthly, the law was designed to bring people to Christ. Can you say amen to that? I know, you start talking about the law, and you talk about judgment, and it feels like this is going to be a heavy one. But listen, the purpose of the law was to bring us to Christ. Galatians 3.24 says, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So you look into the law and you say to yourself, I, I, can't, I can't keep up this standard. There's no way. It's too much. And the law has done its job because it causes you to now realize you need a Savior whose name is Jesus, that you might be justified by faith. I got this quote, and this is one of the quotes in the video um, that, that Ray Comfort did that we showed you. Hitler said this, History will recognize our movement as the great battle for humanity's liberation, a liberation from the curse of Mount Sinai. What's the curse of Mount Sinai? The law. God is a tyrant. Listen, this is, now you know this is crazy. God is a tyrant who orders one to do the very thing one doesn't like. 
isn't it interesting that we have a conscience? How do those who don't believe in God and who believe in evolution, how do they explain conscience? Not consciousness, but conscience. Something, something deep within you that kind of says, man, I'm not sure that that was right. You know, something about that's not right. Uh, where did conscience come from? Ah, well, it's interesting that our conscience, tell, if we don't have the written law or haven't read the written law, God has placed another law in our hearts. That's why little children, before they, before they really can discern good from evil, that's why when they, when they do something wrong, they instinctively know it. Don't they? they, they you know, don't, do, don't go in there. The floor is wet. Okay. What do they do? They, sometimes, not all. What do you do? What did I do? We go right in there, and then <gasps> we go and we hide. See, their conscience at a young age, their conscience tells them that's not right. That's the law of God on their hearts. So Paul argues people are without excuse. Well, what about the people that don't have a Bible? Well, they have a conscience because God's pre-wired us with that. Animals don't have a conscience. You put some food out and you tell, you know, you kind of, you, you know, you like maybe you put it on the counter and, 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 and you're out of the house and the dog sees it and runs up and takes it. I don't know if its conscience bothers him as much as the taste of that steak you just baked. I don't know, maybe. <laughs> maybe they take it and run too, but that's so they can eat it privately. I don't know. I don't know. So Paul says this, even in Romans 2, 14 through 15, even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it. Even without having heard it, they demonstrate that God's law is written on their hearts. For their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them uh, they are doing right. Isn't that interesting? The law of God written in our hearts, pre-programmed, pre-wired, every human being has it. And so if you don't have the written law of God, the Ten Commandments, you don't believe in God, uh, but then, but then you, 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 uh, you have this conscience within you uh, uh, when the two come together and you recognize within you that this law is right because my conscience already agrees with that. Yeah, that's why these people, who most of which were not God followers, agreed they were liars, thieves, and adulterers. Who told them that? Their conscience. They know, and they don't even have God's law. See how God's law works? I want to show you how Jesus used the law. And many times when Jesus spoke to people, he brought it in the context of the law. And there's a purpose for this. Now, I know what you're thinking. Man, that sounds, you can't tell someone they're a liar, a thief, and an adulterer. Well, okay, maybe not. But you can utilize the law of God as a lever to bring them to grace. I'm going to explain that by showing what Jesus did. John chapter 4, if you want to open up in your Bibles or your smartphone or your tablet. <clears throat> John chapter 4, personal evangelism, Jesus style. This is how Jesus did it, okay? Last week, we saw how Philip was used by God to speak, uh, uh, to spark a revival in the area of Samaria. 
And if you were with us, you remember we talked about how Samaria was an area that the Jewish people didn't want to be in. That was the other side of the tracks. They hated the Samaritans. They would go all the way around Samaria rather than go through Samaria. Okay? Uh, it was cultural. It was racial. Uh, it, was, um, uh, it was everything that's wrong with, with uh, uh, prejudice and, and, and all of those things. Uh, so anyway, uh, God uses Philip uh, because of the persecution of Saul of Tarsus. Uh, Philip takes off and he goes to Samaria and he begins to preach the gospel and the Samaritans are getting born again left and right. They're receiving the Holy Spirit. There's amazing things that are happening. God told Philip to leave there and on the road that he travels on, a road less travel, he runs into an Ethiopian eunuch, all right? And the word of God is spreading, just like Jesus said, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the world. So today, we're going to look at Jesus' encounter with a woman at a well who was a Samaritan in Samaria. Now, opposition is rising against Jesus, especially from the Pharisees and the religious leaders, but it's not the time yet to confront them because Jesus knows that when he starts to confront the Pharisees and the Sadducees for their hypocrisy, that it won't be long until they develop a plan to execute him. And so it's not that time quite yet. And so he heads north from Jerusalem to Galilee. And rather than taking the old route that everyone else takes and going around Samaria, Jesus did what he does so often. He goes right through Samaria. <laughs> oh, man. Could you just feel the apostles going, why are you doing this? Jesus, come here. Don't, we, we don't do this. We go around for real. No, no, Jesus, we're going, got to go. And it says he had to go through Samaria. Duh. Right now, I don't know if the disciples said anything or not, but you just wonder in their hearts if they were like, Ugh. is there a reason we have to go through Samaria? I don't know if they asked that question, but you know what? Jesus broke those cultural norms because he's setting the pace for what would one day, one day be Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the earth. Now, the Samaritans had set up an alternative worship center because the only worship center that was pretty much legitimate was supposed to be in Jerusalem, and then there were synagogues in various cities. So the Samaritans, since the Jews hated them so much, they decided to set up their own worship center in this particular place. But 150 years prior to this conversation, that place has been destroyed. So essentially, they don't have a place to worship, but they still reverence the mountain, Mount Gerizim. That's where they are. Jacob's well is on this property, and when uh, you own or you have the property around such a sacred place, that was a source of pride for them. Yeah, see, we have Mount Gerizim. Ha ha. Not only that, we have Jacob's well. Uh huh. So there's maybe a little bit of sense of pride in that, but that fueled even more hatred. Okay? So twice a day, in the morning and in the evening, the women from the neighboring villages came to this well to get water twice a day, in the morning and in the evening. All right, let's pick it up in John chapter 4, verse 4 through, seven, four through 8 says this. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus tried for the long... Um, Attired, I'm sorry, from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. 
Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at that time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. So a couple of things very quickly. We see it says he had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. Jesus, why are we going through Samaria? Because we have to go through Samaria. Why? Because we have to go that's what we do. You know, when you're, why, why are we doing this? Why, how come? Well, because we have to, Jesus says. We have to. Uh, listen, with Jesus, even simple things become opportunities, don't they? Even simple things. He goes through Samaria, finds a well, and he sits down by it. And there's something dramatic that's about to happen. Notice also it says he was tired. You know, we, we, we think of Jesus, oh, you know, glory and honor and absolutely. But on earth, we forget that he was 100% human too. And so here's God in the flesh, tired. It's a long walk. It's a hot maybe time. And, and, he's, and he's tired. Don't, don't minimize his humanity. Don't minimize that. We always exalt his deity, but don't minimize his humanity, okay? And so a Samaritan woman comes. Okay, first of all, she's a woman. Secondly, they're alone. And thirdly, he says, please give me a drink. Okay, rabbis don't do that. Rabbis tended not even to want to associate or talk to women. Rabbis distanced themselves from women. And for sure, they distanced themselves from women when they were alone. And for sure, for sure, they distanced themselves from women when they were alone who were Samaritans. <laughs> And he says, give me a drink. Not only that, he enters into a conversation with her. And he asks her a question. Notice that he starts with something she could relate to. Water and thirst. Very simple. Common ground. Both of them needed water. Both of them needed water. You know, when you're sharing Christ with someone, we're going to say it again and again and again. Start with common ground. But don't just stay there, as we'll see Jesus does. Well, we can all, there's many things we can all agree on. Yeah, but let's talk about the things we can't agree on. Don't just agree. Move on. Common ground. Anyway, the next step will take courage. This is where you shift gears, right? Watch this. Verse 9 through 15. The woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? <laughs> it's great, isn't it? Like, why are you, what? this is strange. Why are you asking me for a drink, right? Now, Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. She says, but sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket. <laughs> Uh, and the well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob? Oh, a little sense of Samaritan pride there. Who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoy? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But... Those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. 
It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. <laughs> now, put yourself in the sandals of the Samaritan woman. And, and now, Jesus is speaking about something spiritual, and she's thinking about something physical. Okay, so it's important to note. And so she's thinking, let me get this straight. You're going to give me water that I'm kind of like never going to run out of, and it's fresh, and it's alive, and it's effervescent, and it's going, to, it's going to bubble over? Well, you know what? She says in verse 15, please, sir, give me this water, and I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water anymore. And if she's really thinking, since there's such an ample supply, she'll bottle it and sell it for a dollar a pop, Right? She engages into this conversation physically. Jesus is speaking spiritually. Here's the point. The spiritual realm often parallels the physical realm. Our bodies get thirsty. Our bodies get hungry. So do our souls. Our souls get hungry and they get thirsty. And, 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 and we, we try to satisfy that hunger deep within us, that sense of belonging, that sense of identity, that, that sense of accomplishment. Many, many, many different ways. Some go all the way over the edge trying to accomplish some sense of, of, of security in, in their heart. Jesus is the one who satisfies our spiritual hunger and our spiritual thirst. And he's the only one who can completely satisfy it, not just to the brim, but to overflowing again. Oh, young people, if you can get this now, that Jesus is the one who satisfies your every need, that everything you need is in Christ. You don't need to go beyond that. You don't need to go to the excess. If everyone else goes this way, you don't have to go that way because this direction will eventually run out. But what Jesus has to give will never run out. It will always, it's always enough if we will tap into it. Can you say amen to that? It's true. It's true. Remember Philip the evangelist? He says to the Ethiopian eunuch, he says, what are you reading? <laughs> Just a question. <laughs> hey, what are you reading? Jesus says, um, can you give me some water, please? Um, he, he, building a bridge on a, on a, on a, on a, a common ground. Uh, you, you might say something like this. You might say, hey, have you seen that movie Woodlawn? See that movie? The movie's awesome. If you don't know, it's about a, it's about a, a, a school in the 70s uh, that had an absolute revival it, it, right in the midst of, of, of racism and prejudices. And it's a, it's a movie about a football team that because of the influence of Christ tore down the walls of separation. And see, if anyone should be leading the way in tearing down the walls of racial division, it should be the church of Jesus Christ. Amen? I mean, come on. 1970s. Woodlawn. You might say something like that. No, no, I, I haven't seen that movie. Oh, well, it's a movie about this, 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 you know, this school and how Jesus kind of infiltrated it. And, and you know, I mean, it's just, it's just a question. And, and, you know, you kind of, sometimes you just throw out a question. And you just kind of see where it goes, right? And, well, that's what Jesus did, but I think he knows where it's going. So next, Jesus speaks a word of knowledge, okay? <clears throat> a word of knowledge is a supernatural gift where you know something about someone. 
God downloads something into you and you speak it to someone else. And they go, oh, God, okay, how did you know that? How did you know that? Okay, there's no way you could have known. Man, that's the gift of knowledge. By the way, for those of you in this room that have the gift of knowledge, not intuition. Well, I don't know, dude is weird. I don't know, something about him I don't like. Okay, that's not the gift of knowledge. Okay, that could be the gift of criticalness, okay? It, it might be, okay? And you might be wrong. But for those of you who have the supernatural gift of knowledge, let me just say this. Develop the gift. We need you. We need you. We need you. Thank you for that spontaneous applause, sister. We, we, we need you. Develop the gift. I'm not sure... Of, of all the different gifts, I think the gift of knowledge could be one of the hardest ones to actually engage because you've got to go to someone, maybe it's someone you know, maybe it's someone you don't know. God has downloaded something into your spirit, and you've got to have the courage to go to that person and say, I don't know if this, you know what, I just, God showed me something and I, about you, and I just want to, well, well, who do you think you, because, you know, what, what, if, what if I'm wrong? You know, you go, well, God showed me this about you. You go, really? Okay. And they go, do you, well, does that apply? You go, not at all. You go, well, I'm not doing that again ever, 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 God. I knew that didn't apply. <laughs> what if I'm wrong? I know, it's so hard. The gift of knowledge, we need you. Listen, develop, step out in faith. Ask God to give you greater, greater knowledge, supernatural knowledge. All right. All right, so he, Jesus has this word of knowledge. And what he does is he speaks to her conscience by telling her that she's violated the seventh commandment. Here's where the law comes in. Starts with give me a drink, then it goes to the seventh commandment, the law. Okay, now this is what it says in verse 16 and 18. Jesus shifts gears and says, go get your husband. <laughs> Time out, man. We've been talking about water. <laughs> I'm, trying to get a bu- I'm trying to get a bucket of water that I'll never, refreshing, I'll never run out of, that, that will bubble over and flow over. And now, you, what, what's this got to do with my husband? Mm. Oh. Don't you love it when the Holy Spirit does that? When God asks you a question? When God says, why are you so prideful? And you go, whoa, wait a minute. What was that? Get behind me, Satan. No, no, that wasn't Satan. Oh, why do you, oh, man, the questions of the Lord. He says, go get your husband. Everything changes. Verse 17, I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Emphasis added by me, okay? Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband. For you've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You've certainly spoke the truth. You know what that's called? That's called busted. Okay. And it's true. And she knows it. He used the law to bring about the knowledge of sin. You violated the sixth commandment. You don't have a husband. And you're living in sin right now. Oh. Do you feel her heart just drop? Do, 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 she's talking to God. And he has said, you're, you're, you're living a lie. 
you're living in adultery and you know it. Jesus did this often. Remember his encounter with the rich young ruler. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? You know the commandments. And he runs through the first five that have to do with relationships. Uh, Through the five that have to do with relationships with others. And he says, all of these I have kept since my youth. Jesus says, one thing you lack. I don't lack anything. I've kept all the law my whole life. One thing you lack. Sell everything you own. Give the money away to the poor and come follow me. Uh, hold, hold up now, yo. I'm, I'm, I'm saying what must I do to inherit eternal life. We ain't talking about me selling all my stuff. That's the problem. See, God uses the law to say, You've got another God before me. You've got an idol in your life. You violated commandment number two. You might say something like this to someone. Someone that you have a relationship with. Or someone that God is speaking to you about sharing your faith with. You might say, if you died tonight, are you absolutely sure you'd go to heaven? I'm not saying you're going to die tonight, but, but I mean, if you did, are you absolutely sure? Remember the video we saw? This gal, obviously living a life of sin. He takes the law and says, have you ever looked at, in her case, another woman with lust? Have you ever used Jesus, the, the Lord's name in vain? She uses it right away, flippantly, callously, coldly. Who cares? Right? So he uses the law to show her her sin. And then in the video, he asks this question. She says, I'd absolutely go to heaven. Then she admits she's a lying adulterer. What's he doing? He's pricking her heart. He's pricking her conscience because the law is written in her heart. She just doesn't have it on the books. Okay? You might say something like that. Or if you die today, are you absolutely sure you're going to heaven? Yes, I am a good person. Based on what? Have you ever lied? You ever stolen something? You ever committed adultery? You ever looked at a woman with lust in your heart? If God judges you by the Ten Commandments, would you be innocent or guilty? Well, what are the Ten Commandments? You ever lie? You ever stolen? You ever... Ah, so you bring up the law, and after that you say, so based on the law, do you think you'd go to heaven or hell? People freely admit I'd go to hell. And then he asked the, the, the follow-up question, does that concern you at all? I had a conversation with a young man once in a mall. I asked him that question. If you died tonight, man, and we had talked for a little bit, so it wasn't like I was just randomly picking people. I felt like God put that on my heart. I wasn't just like picking people off. You know, I was like led to this young man. And he said, oh, man, you know what? I believe I, I'd, go, I'd go to hell tonight. I said, you don't believe in hell. He goes, yes, I do. I said, no, you don't. He goes, yes, I do. I said, no, you don't. Because if you truly believed in hell, you wouldn't say it like that. And you'd do something about it. There are people who might say, I don't believe in hell. You might ask, why not? There are people who might say, I'm guilty, but I still believe I'll go to heaven. Based on what? 
God is good and God is just. God's a loving God. He's absolutely that. But he's also a judge. Many are banking on the goodness of God, but have forgotten about the justice of God. Any good judge wouldn't let the guilty go and say, you know what, you're guilty, you're 100% guilty, but I see you had a bad date, you're free to go. What kind of judge are you? You're fired. And there are those who might say, I'm guilty and I'll go to hell. And you might just say, how does that make you feel? Does that concern you? Are you worried about that? What if there was a way you could escape hell? Would you be interested? This woman thought in error that Jesus' words would make her life easier. So she's interested to what he has to say. She brings up the issue of the right geographical place to worship, the right location. She's trying to change subjects. Jesus essentially says to her, it's not that important uh, 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 where you worship. What's more important is the heart of the worshiper. Um, at that time, worship was always tied to a building or geography. Jesus says there's a time coming when worship won't be tied to anything, but it'll be in spirit and in truth. Okay? Verse 24 through 26, wrapping up, it says, For God is spirit, so those who worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. Expectation, when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. What he really said is, I am. I am. Oh, come on. Come on. There's something of freedom happening now. Something in her heart is changing. She's having a conversation with God come in the flesh. The, her sin's been addressed. She knows she's gone. Jesus brought the law before her. She's responded to it. <clears throat> you know, Jesus had many conversations with many people. Not all of them made into the eternal word of God. But this one did. And we're reading it today, 2,000 years later. Verse 27 through 30 says this, Just then the disciples came back, and they were shocked to find him talking to a woman. But none of them had the nerve to ask, What do you want with her? Or, what are you Why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, Come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? Verse 30, so the people came st uh, streaming from the village to see him. Verse 39 through 42, many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because of what the woman had said. He told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village, so he stayed two more days. You know, there were, there were towns in, 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 in Israel that were kicking them out of the city. And the Samaritans were embracing him, saying, no, give him stay longer. Stay here longer. Two more days. Long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. And they said to the woman, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. Listen, despite her reputation, she went and told others. They came to hear for themselves. Now we believe, not because of what your testimony was, now we have our own testimony. We believe because we've heard it with our own ears. Let me wrap it up by just telling you these things. Take time to engage people, especially when others won't. Take time to engage people, especially when others 
won't in the unique way that Christ has wired you. Speak an understandable language. Speak an understandable language. Excuse me, brother, a quick question. Are you, have you been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? Dude, what are you talking about? That don't even make sense to me. Try not to use too much Christianese. Find common ground. Genuinely care for others. Do you think Christ genuinely cared for this woman or just wanted to kind of get another notch on the old evangelism belt? No, he genuinely cared. And you know, not everybody's ready when you think they should be to be a follower of Christ. So therefore, you have to be committed to more than just seeing them one for the kingdom. You have to be committed to them as individuals, whether they come to know Christ or not. Whether they come to know Christ or not. Well, listen, this is the fifth time I'm telling you the message. I'm not telling you no more. Well, I'm sure glad God didn't do that with me. Because <laughs> I assure you, it was more than five times he tried to get my attention. Right? Okay. Don't be afraid to share the law in love. Share the law. You know why? It's already prepackaged. It's not your job to convince anyone that, that they're, they're in sin. Your, your job is to share the love of Christ and to explain the law that's written on their hearts already. The last thing I say is this. Go tell everyone. Go tell everyone. Here's the good news. We're not under the law, but we're under grace. We're not under the law because one day the Ten Commandments will judge you of which we're all guilty of breaking his law. It will be our judge. It will be. He's a just God. He can't just wink at sin and go, oh, well, that's humans. That's how they are. No, the Ten Commandments will be our judge. And we've broken every one of them multiple times, more than we even know. Or the Ten Commandments will be our lever that brings us to grace. It'll be our tutor that teaches us. The weight of the Ten Commandments will push us down and we'll reach out and grab a hold of the Savior who will lift us up. Amen? Amen. We're not under the law, but we're under grace. That's the good news. We're not held, uh, 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 we're, we're not guilty for all of our sins. We have committed sin. We're all guilty. That's the beauty of the law. It levels the plane. Whatever your belief system is, whatever your philosophy is, whatever how much good you've done in your life, how much money you've given away or not, whether you live what you think is a righteous life or you don't, the law shatters it all. It shatters it all, and it says it's a level playing field. Now, what are you going to do about the Big Ten that stand as your judge? Oh, I need a Savior. Ooh, grab a hold of Jesus, lift you up. You're not under law, but you're under grace. Oh, that law is a heavy burden. That's why people who are super religious are so burdened down. You know, it's hard to be overly religious and happy, <laughs> Because what happens, the law just drives you down. That's what it does. It's a heavy burden. We've been set free. And whom the, whom the Son has set free is? You know it. You know it. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We're going to take our missions offering. Let me have our, our, our ushers come forward, and I want to pray for that. And I want to just say this in closing, that you know what? Um... It takes discernment to know when to and how to. May God give us the discernment we need. And, and this morning, if you, if you 
uh, if you're not a follower of Christ, I just tell you straight up, the law will be your judge. You can't escape it. It's already written in your heart. 